when I started working in West Virginia, I wanted to make sure that we were putting forth this um, conception of folk life that was vibrant and diverse and contemporary um, and really acknowledged all the communities that are present in modern day West Virginia. This is Commonplace, the show about creative people and the things that inspire them. I'm Nathan Thomas. Today on the show, we have author and folklorist Emily Hilliard. Her new book is called Making Our Future, Visionary Folklore and Everyday Culture in Appalachia. It's a celebration and study of Appalachian culture with an emphasis on West Virginia, where Emily worked as a state folklorist for over five years. In our conversation, we talk about how she became interested in becoming a folklorist, Fosnacht, pro wrestling, and her incredible record label, Spinster Sounds. Here is my conversation with with Emily Hilliard. So the new book starts in Eastern Kanawha County on Route 60, uh, which is a place very near and dear to my heart. It's my favorite drive in the state from the Shrewsbury area up, you know, even towards Ging to Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom's side of the family is from that way, uh, nice. so I know it well. Uh, why did it seem like that was a good place to start the book? Well, it's my favorite drive in West Virginia, too, um, and I really wanted something to put us in place in the state, especially people reading it who aren't from the area. I wanted a kind of description that would get into all of these kind of complex uh, themes and um, just kind of like the state of West Virginia today. And I feel like you really witnessed that on the drive. Um, It's so beautiful. Um, So you get this kind of um, understanding of why people come to the state for tourism um, and why people who are from the state love it so much. for its natural beauty. Um, there's these kind of manufacturing plants and coal plants that tower over the roadside. You have the railroad that you cross over multiple times. There's hot dog stands. There's Shoney's and Tudor's. Um, multiple Dollar Generals at this point. Yes. <laughs> Lots of churches. Um, the burger there's cart. black and white communities. Yeah, burger cart, great hot dog joint. Um, I think you pass, I don't know if them, t- them two brothers has that second location still, but I think that there's a second location you passed. Um, so it really is this good introduction to the state and the, the way I'm going to talk about culture in the state. Um, and then I, I sort of end it in the New River Gorge uh, and that part of the introduction. Um because in the New River Gorge, if you go there and maybe you're not from the state and you read the markers that are there in various places like in Thurmond or um, is it Kayford, um, top and bottom, um, you really kind of get this sense that culture in West Virginia was lost <laughs> when the, the coal industry, um, you know, left um, that part of the state or um, when Thurmond stopped being this kind of bustling railroad town. 
Um, and there's really no evidence of culture in West Virginia today uh, represented in the gorge on these interpretive signs. Um, but of course, we know that um, there's a lot of culture in West Virginia today, and um, that happens in the New River Gorge. I think there's at least 13 cemeteries that are in the park um, itself. There's families that have used that land for hunting and foraging and fishing for decades. Um, so culture is happening in this park, um, you know, every day. So I really wanted this sense of that's the way we're going to be thinking about culture in West Virginia today. There's tradition that comes from the past, but it's being reshaped by communities um, in the present. And they are doing that for future generations. Uh, yeah, a friend of mine, his family has roots in Thurmond. They attended the, um, his grandparents or great-grandparents or something, uh, attended the uh, Miners Church there. Oh, nice. And uh, so visiting Thurmond for them is going back to like family grounds instead of visiting this semi-tourist attraction that was in a movie once. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, which the only time I have been to Thurmond was uh, my first birthday during the pandemic because mm -hmm. I wanted to do something, but it felt unethical to go anywhere but a literal ghost town. <laughs> right. uh, so we were able to kind of isolate and be away from things. That's cool. Yeah. So just with your background, when did you first start exploring folk life as an idea or a field of study you wanted to go down? Um. Well... I think it was really after undergrad. Um, I grew up around folk life. I mean, every folk life is a part of everyone's lives, but um, my dad had a folk radio show uh, and we grew up, I grew up in Northern Indiana, um, which is kind of a Rust Belt town that was um, a lot of actually Appalachian people and um, migrants from the South moved there to work in the factories. Um, which is something I've kind of realized, uh, realized lately that it was this Southern, you know, outpost for Southern migration. Um, but there were also a lot of Mennonite communities and artisans in that area. Um, that we had a contra dance at one point in the, um, building behind my house that my dad used as a studio. He's a photographer. And so I grew up around folk culture. Um, but I didn't really understand it was something you could study until after I was out of undergrad. Um, and I moved to Vermont. I was working as an AmeriCorps Vista and I was playing in old time bands and also had a radio show at that point and just kind of realized that all the books I was checking out from the library were related to folk life, um, specifically Shirley Collins, America Over the Water. Um, she's a British ballad singer who... Um, traveled with Al Momax on his Southern Journey um, trip. Uh, and then I was also um, working on a project through the Vermont Folklife Center that was trying to document, I think it was 500 years of Vermont music, quite an ambitious project. Um, but I was then realizing that there was this public folklore phenomenon and that you, there were a few programs where you could study folklore and ethnomusicology. 
Um, so at that point, I moved to D.C. and did some internships uh, while I applied to grad school. One thing reading the book, it seems like there's this um, very uh, purposeful attempt of expanding the definition of folklore or folk life. Whenever someone says that the image they get in their head could be anything from like the Vandalia Festival to like that kind of handmade type artisan thing that you would see at like craft fairs or something Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. but here you're expanding it to things like pro wrestling video games um just talk about your attempt at expanding the definition of what that includes yeah so in the folklore world that is pretty common to think of a folk life as being very contemporary and diverse Um, But that's not always the case in uh, mainstream perceptions of folklore. And I think especially in a place like West Virginia, folklore often gets coded as the old timey ways. And often that's of white folks um, in the mountains. Um, So when I started working in West Virginia, I wanted to make sure that we were putting forth this um, conception of folk life that was vibrant and diverse and contemporary um, and really acknowledged all the communities that are present in modern day West Virginia. So um, yeah, I think, I think of folk life as being something that is both collective and creative. Um, So in the book, there's chapters on the West Virginia teacher's strike. And I'm looking at that and the way that teachers use their creativity in their signs, in their t-shirts, in their chants, their songs, their food during the strike to uh, form a new identity and solidarity as workers. And then with something like wrestling, looking at the way um, it is a form of performance and vernacular theater that happens in small towns in West Virginia, um, where the audience uh, is really in dialogue with the performers and can change the the action as it as it is unfolding. Um, but there's also things like community museums and um, non-professional women songwriters, so people who are working within a tradition but kind of have a practice that is maybe more private and personal. Um, so it really kind of spans this um, gamut of folk and traditional arts and culture in West Virginia. And I wanted to make sure there was um, a lot of those different genres represented. So there's foodways and there's um, a little bit of craft um, kind of tangentially. There's um, music, uh, there's video games, there's performance. You spent a number of years as a West Virginia state folklorist. Were you writing this book uh, alongside doing the job? Or did you really, obviously you're collecting stories during that time and a lot of those are in the book, uh, but was the writing process mostly after you had departed that position? No, I started writing in 2019 um, in earnest. Some of these chapters had started as you know shorter pieces um, and were published elsewhere and then I expanded on them for the book. Um, but really I... I started kind of working um, on the book as halftime in my job in 2019. So just a little bit before the pandemic hit. And a lot of the writing um, 
was happening, you know, in the height of the pandemic. So 2020. Um, but yeah, it was based on field work I had already done as a state folklorist for the most part. Do you think it would have been hard to navigate some of these stories in the way you do, such as the teacher strike, uh, had you stayed within that folklorist position or would you've had to tone down some of the uh, radicalness to uh, appease people at the state level? Well, I think I already toned it down. <laughs> so I think what you see is pretty toned down. Um, no, I mean, I, I had sort of intended the book to come out when I was in that position and then I ended up taking another job. Um, so yeah, I think I was already kind of careful. Um, and maybe it doesn't seem like it, but it's, <laughs> it's, I'm already kind of tempering it a little bit. Um, but when I was working, um, you know, in that role, there was my previous boss, you know, my boss at the time, um, who is no longer at the council, um, he was concerned about me advertising that I was documenting the teacher strike. Um, he did not have an issue with um, the fact that I was doing it, but just the kind of the notion that it could be perceived as as taking a political side, which, um, you know, I think it's clear where my allegiances lie in the, the book, but, um, you know, I'm writing that as me, Emily Hilliard, <laughs> not, not as a, you know, a figurehead, but, Re um, retweets don't equal endorsement. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think the way that we are presenting our documentation was, you know, taking a side or not. One thing I know you're trying to do with this book is to not just appeal to the academic sector. Uh, it's for everyone in West Virginia or anyone who might be curious about the culture of the state. Was it hard finding a balance between a more wide appealing style of writing versus that kind of academic speak? Yeah, I think that is is difficult. Um, and some of the chapters I think have more of the academic, um, background than others. Uh, so the Brees pancake chapter, while it does have some academic grounding, um, it was first published in the Oxford American. So it was for more of a, uh, I would say like a curious, um, but not necessarily academic audience. Um, but yeah, and then maybe the teachers or the um, non-professional women's songwriter chapter has more of the academic um, style. But um, but yeah, I mean, I wanted it to be rigorous, but accessible. Um, and I guess I'm kind of used to reading in that mode. Um, just I think if you, if you listen to like lefty podcasts or, um, you know, read read in that kind of mid-academic, I don't know, in that kind of hybrid realm. Um, it's something that I'm used to, but not everyone is. I, I actually got a, um, a review that I didn't like from the LA Review of Books that um, said something about, you know, the ac academic um, language, but um, I really felt like it kind of discounted the, the actual project of the book or like meat of the ideas. So I really kind of wanted to 
to hit that middle road of hybridity. Well, it's definitely a fine line because you don't want to accidentally come off as talking down to the readers. Yes. Uh, but also you want to uh, treat them with respect because, I mean, it, the people reading this book are smart people. They're in tune with the state's culture or they're at least trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um so it's nice that there's this kind of uh, middle place to, to meet them at. Yeah, and that was, that was like one of the things I didn't like about this review. There was sort of the suggestion that the people I write about wouldn't be able to understand, which, Bullshit. Um, I mean, they've all read it <laughs> because yeah. they like, they kind of, you know, part of my I've methodology right is that, <laughs> yeah, and part of like my whole methodology of, collaborative ethnography means that everyone who I'm literally writing about gets to see a draft before it goes to press and their feedback then gets reincorporated into the draft. So, um, I mean, I think if people felt excluded, they, they would have commented. Um, but I did not get that feedback. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's good to, um, meet readers where they're at and not imagine that, you know, they're at, you know, because they're wherever, you know, whatever this reviewer was doing, um, like imagining that because they're, um, you know, everyday people, um, they can't understand rigor. That's just not true. Yeah. Do you think being someone who is not originally from West Virginia, but so um, in the trenches of the state's culture, that when preparing this book and deciding what you are going to include, you were maybe able to look at the state without, say, like rose-tinted glasses on? Um, Because, again, like me... Being from um, the Loudendale area, Kanawha County, outside of uh, Charleston by Kanawha State Forest, mm-hmm. and now having lived in Huntington for the past nine years, if I tried to do a book like this, it would have been skewed towards those parts of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, being the folklorist and traveling throughout the state, you're getting this kind of wider breath. I I really love West Virginia, and I hope that comes through in the book. Um, I think there's pros and cons to being an outsider and that's, you know, not from the area. Um, so in some ways it, I am like seeing the place with fresh eyes. Um, and I don't have past experience, but at the same time, then I don't have that, um, you know, background of information. And I had to do a lot of work um, when I first got there, just like learning West Virginia history. Um, and there's a lot I still don't know. Um, but also, you know, sometimes, uh, when you live in a place, I know I did this with the place where I grew up. Um, there's things you take for granted, uh, that you might not even imagine is, is worthy of writing about or, um, you know, worthy of interrogation or, um, research. So I think that, um, I bring that to the, you know, my, my view of the state. Um, and I I was also like kind of worried about how I might be perceived not being from the area. Um, I actually found that if most, you know, if people commented, people that I interviewed commented, 
it was not that I was from Indiana. It was that I was like, I lived in Charleston and I, um, you know, was like a represent or seen as a representative of, a um, an institution and, um, that I like drove to, to come and interview them. Um, it was more this kind of urban rural divide and just showed me the different ways of being an outsider. Like the more you zoom in on one place, the more there are these layers of like, who's an insider and who's an outsider. The kind of rural versus urban divide is such an interesting way to think about it uh, versus the whole out-of-state, in-state thing. Um, You know, you say you were concerned about how you perceived, but as someone who's lived in this this state his entire life, it's definitely um, written in a way that comes off as uh, just respectful and celebratory of uh, everything within the book. Nice. I'm glad to hear that. Were there any anecdotes or stories that you found during your research that stood out as like interesting or shocking or just really kind of just stood out to you? I think like some of the most fun research was for the hot dog chapter and the wrestling chapter um, because I was going into historical newspaper archives and just like searching the word wrestling or searching the word hot dog and looking for, okay, when did the, when's the first mention of a hot dog in West Virginia paper? Like how did this kind of phenomenon of the West Virginia hot dog come about? And that really revealed this whole labor and um, immigrant and racist history. Um, And I think finding this, this like record of what I call the great, um, I think it's the great hot dog stand wars of Fairmont in 1922 um, was pretty fun to find. Um, so in 1922 in Fairmont, the, the city was like rapidly changing and rapidly industrializing um, with coal mines and also um, I think it was glass factories. Um, maybe it was gas. Anyway, there were, there were like factories that were rapidly expanding in the city And so there were um, migrants, uh, black migrants from the South moving to the city. There were European immigrants moving and um, a lot of Greek immigrants and maybe Italian, maybe Spanish were opening hot dog stands that catered to this new working class um, immigrants and African-Americans included. Um, And then there was this attempt by city leaders to shut down these hot dog stands um, because they were seen as dirty and they were like catering to um, a poor and working class clientele. Um, And then there were people kind of like arguing back in the editorial section, like maybe the city leaders can find something a little bit more, you know, um, important to worry about. So (laughs) it was just like, oh, some things never change, do they? Um, no, they just replaced hot dogs with something else. Yeah. (laughs) But that was really interesting to see. Um, you know, there was this, this point when, um, they, you know, hot dog stands were seen as kind of unsavory and represented, um, you know, changing city of Fairmont. Now, you've been 
statewide for this book, preparing research, and I'm not going to make you rehash the little social media uproar that Zach Harold talked about in uh, his <laughs> interview with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will ask, of all the hot togs that you did eat for research, was there any that stood out as, oh, this one's my favorite? Um, well, I will say there's a really excellent hot dog um, that I write about. The place is no longer serving food, but it was called Jay's Grocery um, in uh, the Southern Coal Fields. It's right next to the, I'm blanking on the name of the town, but it was right next to the abandoned, uh, there's abandoned amusement park um, down there in the coal fields. I will, I'll have to look it up. Um, Lake Shawnee? It's not Lake Shawnee. It okay. starts with a K. Um, uh-huh. But in any case, um, it had been written about on the West Virginia Hot Dog blog and um, kind of like this glowing review. And so my friend Emily and I went down there and Jay's Grocery was a convenience store. Um, it was a, um, the postal uh, it was the post office for the town and it was an alteration stop uh, shop. And I think they maybe sold gas as well. Um, and this woman, Marie, um, made hot dogs. She made the coleslaw to order, um, depending on how, you know, sweet and, um, mayonnaise you liked it. She made her own chili and she also did, um, hand rolled biscuits, um, so it was a really special hot dog. It was on a English bun. So like the lobster roll style bun, which is a little bit of a variant on the West Virginia hot dog, but it was, I think both steamed and toasted. So you got like the softness, but then the toasty sides. And that was a really, really excellent dog, but they stopped serving food recently. Was it just a business thing or were they getting too old or? Yeah, I think it was, they just felt like people were not um, spending money on food. And I think at one point there had been a train that had come through there, commuter train that had stopped, um, stopped like their service. So they just did not get enough people. So both of our favorite hot dogs in the state don't exist anymore. Where Um, was yours? Skinny's? No, mine um, probably stopped around 2008, 2009. Uh-huh. Uh, have you ever been down to Loundell? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the place at the bottom of the hill uh, that looks like it was at one time a gas station, uh, but it's now closed, boarded up, whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, it used to be called Goff's Carryout. Uh, tiny little gas station, uh, hot dogs, um for a period, they had, like, DVD rentals, which <laughs> odd for a business like that. Uh-huh. Um, and just, like, your typical gas station convenience store thing. And this is probably based off of nostalgia and memories more than anything, because I am not, like, the biggest, like, topping person. Usually I'll just get it with, like, ketchup or something, mm-hmm. maybe onions, but nothing, like, too crazy. Uh, but that hot dog pretty good <laughs> even even if again that's just the, the cloud and nostalgia and if i had it now 
I'd be like, oh, this isn't special at all. Right, right. I did look it up a second ago. It was reviewed on the Hot Dog blog. Oh, nice. It only got a 3.5 on the uh, weenie rating. Well, they can be tough sometimes, so. I mean, yeah. that guy eats a lot of dogs. Yeah, yeah. How many do you think you ate uh, mm. within the period where you were working <laughs> on the book? Uh, it wasn't too crazy. I think like when my friend Emily and I went on that tour, we had a pocket knife with us and we started like cutting hot dogs in half. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't an overload. Um, I, I was a vegetarian at one point in my life. Um, but thankfully, um, by the time I got to West Virginia, I was no longer, so I could enjoy, um, the state's bounty, hot dog bounty. Well, how many wrestling shows do you think you went to then? Oh, man. Um, and how many of those was Adam Harris, the ring announcer? For? <laughs> many of them. Um, yeah, so at one of them, which was at, I think, the Running Right Mind Training Facility, which is a pretty fancy uh, facility. It's a little north of um, Madison, West Virginia. But... Um, he brought out one of the belts for me to pose with, which was pretty fun. Um, but yeah, and then uh, I think maybe the the most fun one was um, it was the day that AEW came to Charleston, and so they had a local wrestling match outside um, on the west side of Charleston as a sort of preview. Um, before the AEW um, televised match. And um, there was a character, there's a wrestler who um, I think his name was Jack Sampson. And his gimmick is like, he's this Ohio hillbilly, but he insults West Virginia hillbillies. Um, <laughs> and he was wrestling um, a wrestler who has an Amish gimmick. And um, they were, you know, putting up a pretty good fight and they, it started to rain. It was like this kind of wet, the, the mat was wet. And so anytime anyone got slammed, it was like water would spray on the mat. And then they like kind of chased each other out of the ring. And, um, the Amish wrestler, um, started like fake punching Jack Sampson, um, right by the road. Uh, and this is in that little park where the Charlie Hamilton mural is on the West side. And I was filming it. And as I was filming, I heard a crash and it had literally this, the wrestling match had literally caused a car crash because this car, yeah, this car was just like rubbernecking watching, you know, I don't think they knew it was a wrestling show. They were just watching this Amish man like beat up on this guy. And, um, he ended up rear ending, um, the car in front, uh, the person watching, that should not be funny but it, it is yeah it was pretty amazing i mean like you hear in the video like a loud crash i think everyone was was okay thankfully but um yeah. well that's good yeah when i was rereading the wrestling chapter a couple weeks ago uh just by chance i took a picture of your description of the ring announcer in the first paragraph mm -hmm. and i sent it to adam being like is this you and he was like, yeah, yeah, that's me. <laughs> well, Adam, Adam read it for, um, you know, any. He, uh, yeah, he uh, approved it for you. Yes. He like gave me a few tips and I like was asking him about some of the moves, um, you know, the names of moves and such. 
Were there any topics that you wanted to explore within the book, but you had to leave on the kind room floor? Yeah, there, um, I think most, um, prominently, uh, I wanted to do a chapter on Moorfield, um, West Virginia, where there's a chicken plant and a big community, immigrant community has moved. So I started going to an ESOL class um, taught by Amy Lau there. And she teaches um, mostly people who work in the factory and who come from all over. So Haiti, Puerto Rico, um, there's uh, Burmese um, students in her class, Ethiopian, Eritrean, Honduran. Um, and it's really this, they're not only learning English, but they're learning you know, about each other's culture. And so I went to one of her classes where um, I think in some ways it was because I was coming, but um, they all brought food ways, you know, food from their respective culture and we're sharing um, their food waste traditions with each other. And um, some of the Ethiopian and Eritrean students had a coffee ceremony for us. So they were roasting the coffee um, over the fire. Um, and I, I started to kind of explore that a little bit more and wanted to talk about uh, working conditions at the factory. Um, part of the issue there is that um, a lot of these uh, immigrant workers work such long shifts and there's not a lot of place to gather and not a lot of time, um, spare time, because sometimes, you know, they're helping their student, their children get off to school and then they sleep when their kids are at school. And, um, and so just thinking about the way that that impacts tradition and culture um, but then also the way that they make space for this English class and are able to share, um, share tradition in that way. Um, so there was a lot to explore there. Um, but it really, I started to do that during COVID or, you know, right when COVID hit, um, right before COVID hit. And at that point, um, early in the pandemic, there had been an outbreak in the factory and also, um, you know, I didn't want to um, put any of the workers at risk because of immigration status. Um, and there are also just, you know, some issues about, you know, their work in the factory that I just wasn't sure if it made sense to publicize. Um, so I ended up abandoning that. But um, as a result, there I have these immigrant stories of longstanding immigrant communities, but there isn't really a contemporary immigrant story in the book. Um, and I did end up getting to do a piece with Clara Hazlett for West Virginia Public Broadcasting about um, the coffee ceremony um, practiced by Ethiopian and Eritrean residents in Moorfield. But um, I was really imagining this longer for a piece. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe someday I'll get back to it. Um, I also think there might be some more, um, like, journalistic um, stories that's, you know, an investigative journalist uh, might be interested in there. But um, unfortunately, that one didn't make it in the book, um, which I think, um, you know, is still a very important story to tell. Uh, just looking at 
the book and thinking about Fallout 76, I remember when that game was announced, there was such an excitement kind of in the air, or at least on social media, like, oh, here it is. Here's the um, mainstream piece of pop culture that's going to get the state right. It Mm -hmm. seems like to some degree they did their work because of seeing like Kingdom Park or uh, Fosnacht within like trailers or just uh, press clippings. Even to the point where some friends and I made this like five episode web series and the whole basis of the web series was to kind of explain the backstory or the culture behind some of the things within the game Mm -hmm. to a uh, non-West Virginia audience. Yeah. And I remember we released the first two or three episodes before the game came out and the numbers were doing like pretty well considering the size of our little three-person sketch comedy collective Mm -hmm. and then the game came out and no one liked it at the <laughs> jump. And mm-hmm. then the numbers just tanked for the rest of the episodes. Oh, and it's not like we did anything wrong. It's just people realized that the game wasn't what they thought or it wasn't finished or it wasn't buggy. Yeah. Uh, but it, it tanked our views. Uh, but it seems like to a degree that, you know, if they fix the game people i think for the most part like it now it still has a a player base and Mm -hmm. it's still um impacting kind of tourism within the state because you do uh go to fosnacht and Mm -hmm. see people with um kind of costumes reflecting that yep Uh, or at least was that how it seemed doing your research yeah um although i think a lot of the like the fosnacht i had most of the Fosnacks I've been to were pre-Fallout. Um, I hear that there has been kind of an overrun of um, Fallout gamers at Fosnacht. Um, and I know that there is some concern about that changing um, the tradition in Helvetia, um, which is a tiny town. And, you know, Fosnacht really runs on volunteer labor. Um, and so I think... On one hand, it has kind of spurred an interest in the state and particularly in these small communities, but at the same time, um, it can be hard for these communities to respond um, or with something like Fosnacht where people are coming to a specific event um, that is, you know, a cultural tradition. Um, I just worry about the community having a say in how that tradition kind of changes because of, uh, because of this. And I think, um, that's a question that some of the residents have brought to me. It's like, you know, the gamers didn't ask, um, Helvetians if they wanted to be represent, if they wanted their town to be represented in this way. And I think it's pretty complex. Like in some ways you could see it as a tribute and it is very immaculately rendered in the game, but at the same time, Um, it could kind of overwhelm these small community celebrations. Plus there's that balance of the people attending it as a um, cultural Mardi Gras type religious practice versus video game tourism. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're attending it for different reasons. It's like the spiritual versus the kind of uh, uh, pop cultural. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel lucky in that I've only been to it once, but I think it was the one before the game was announced. So none of that had kind of really started to seep in. Uh And I loved it so much. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's such... Yeah, and if it's snowing, or <laughs> it can just be totally magical up there. I don't think it was like full on snowing. It was by the time we woke up it overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just kind of just cold, a little wet, muddy. We burn old man winter, mm-hmm. and then somehow it instead of chasing off winter, we get a couple inches of snow. Yeah, that's been my experience a few times, too. <laughs> Waking up on the floor of the band hall uh-huh. uh, because we didn't get an Airbnb or anything. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, that's the only... <laughs> There's that little, like, cubby at the end of the hall where the kitchen is and the counters. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, like, the floor on the kitchen is the space me and my friends claimed as, like, our kind of, like, <laughs> sleeping area. So mm-hmm. it's the only time that waking up on the kitchen floor has been a good thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but it's just such a special festival. Moving uh, away from the book for a second, another thing that you're heavily involved in is this uh, incredible record label that I, I really love dearly, uh, Spencer. Uh, what were the origins of the label and what are the, the plans for it right now? Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, my friend Sally and I had joked for a long time about um, starting a record label, and it was kind of like in reaction to a boys club um, that we had saw, especially when I was living in North Carolina. Um, There was sort of like an incestuous um, club of like guys who played in each other's bands and then wrote about each other's music. And um, there's like some labels that, you know, had no women or recording artists, um, at the time. Um, but then we, well, actually Sally and her friend, Sarah, who they were in a band together, um, went on tour with someone, a guy who had a record label and, um, they were sort of like, well, like we, we can do this too. Um, and they came back and from tour and were like, oh, that thing we've joked about for a long time, we should actually do it. Um, and, it just so happened like at that, at that time we, you know, said we were going to start this label and um, Rosalie pitched us her uh, record trouble anyway, that came out um, in 2018. So that was our first release. And we did it as a split with uh, scissor tail, um, which is D- Dylan golden Acox record label. Um, he's a Tulsa guy. And then from there, it just kind of um, started rolling. It's, um, it's really a side kind of hobby project, which um, is nice because then you can kind of have it be whatever you want it to be. Um, so we don't really have a pressure to put out a certain number of records a year. Um, so that means that everything we put out, we really, really love. And it's sort of our way of um, being involved in music and uh, supporting artists um, and um, I really like writing about music, so uh, I do a lot of the, the um, like PR and writing press releases and that 
sort of thing. And Sally is a designer, so she does a lot of the layout um, of the records. And then Michelle Dove joined us uh, two years ago. She's also a writer. Um, and so, yeah, I think we put out nine or 10 releases so far, um, including a compilation tape. Um, we are working now on another compilation tape that is cooking and food themed um, and may or may not have a little cookbook coming out with, with it. I don't know, but that's going to be a tape. Um, and there's a lot of awesome artists involved with that. Um, and then we are actually working on another release, final release, that is one of the women in the women's songwriter chapter. So Ella Hanshaw, um, she was a, she's from Clay County, West Virginia, and she and her husband had gospel quartets with another couple that toured churches in Southern West Virginia in the 80s. Um, and she wrote original gospel songs for that quartet. Um, and then I, we've been working with her granddaughter and her granddaughter found some tapes of like these Lonesome Housewife secular country songs that she had written. And those are just incredible. Um, and in some of them, you can hear her kids playing in the background as she's like recording it kind of seems like in a back bedroom. Um, so we're putting out her um, a release of her music that'll be one side secular and one side gospel songs all of her originals um well, yeah I so really i'm really can't wait really for that that sounds that. Yeah. so much up my alley <laughs> awesome yeah and then that will be our first like archival release and then we have another kind of more ambitious archival release on deck after that plus you've put out a lot of stuff that I've really loved, like the uh, Yasmin Williams album, uh, the two Lou Turner albums mm -hmm. are so great. Yeah, the I Amelia Courthouse tape. Uh, it must be exciting too that you're able to give these artists such like, because it is a small label, such specialized care and attention. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun um, just to be able to work with all these people. So now that the book is out, what's next for you? Um, well, I've been kind of on a little book tour and um, yeah, I will do a few more uh, things maybe in the summer and definitely in the fall. Um, I finished up a project on rural um, mail carriers in central Appalachia. That was um, through the American Folklife Center and those all those recordings are going to be at the Library of Congress, but um, I still want to do some some writing about that. Um, and I'm going to the Postal Museum um, in D.C. Um, next month um, to present on that work, uh, which will be cool. Um, so, yeah, I still have to, to do some writing about that. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. Um, People keep asking if there's another book. Uh, I haven't really thought about that. Maybe someday. <laughs>
I've included a bookshop link to Emily's book, Making Our Future, in the show description. With Bookshop, you can buy your copy online with some of the money going to a partnered local bookstore of your choice. Thank you for listening to Commonplace. If you like today's show, I ask that you subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend. These are free ways that help the show in a big way. The show is hosted and produced by me, Nathan Thomas. Our theme song is Rescio by Goodwolf from the album Car in the Woods. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Commonplace. Place.